So Endless Frontier, now the much less catchy U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, is getting closer. The Senate is now giving NSF a cool $38 billion, with another $50 billion split between energy, commerce, DARPA, and NASA. Elon, what's your hot take? You know, Jordan, to me, it's not about how much money gets spent. It's about how we spend it. I'd argue that probably about $20 billion over five years, if spent in the right way, could really transform the U.S. innovation enterprise. And when I say in the right way, I mean find those aspects for R&D that are most missing in today's systems, the ones that are those bottlenecks, uh, and let's invest in those. Let's invest in experiments around how we do research better, how we manage research differently, how we improve the incentives to get the outcomes that we want. And you can run a lot of really substantive and significant experiments with four or five billion dollars a year. So let's choose our battles well. Let's make the most of it. Even if 20 percent of the funding they're talking about here gets spent right, we can make something really powerful out of this and have a lot to celebrate. Bell Labs is dead. Long live Bell Labs. This week's guest, Alan Gore, formerly of ARPA and the CEO of Activate.org, which is the coolest applied research fellowship in the game, has a plan to improve America's R&D apparatus. He wants to fund startups that allow entrepreneurial researchers to pursue practical applications of their basic research. We discuss why the system doesn't make it easy to create a Moderna or a BioNTech, the impact of researchers moving from corporations to universities, endless frontier, why patents don't equal innovation, and more. Alan. How does science funding work today in America? Maybe let's start out with academia. What is it supposed to be doing in the way the system is currently set up? So if you think about science funding and you think about academia, historically, academia was about education almost exclusively. And the scientific research side of universities were really educationally oriented. And now a lot of our sort of basic and fundamental research in the U.S. is happening at universities. And so that's another really big role of, of what they play. And is is that a positive, negative trend? What are the sort of externalities of universities becoming the centers of basic research? Yeah, look, to some extent, it's a positive trend. The entire enterprise of academic research really grew out of World War II, where the country woke up to the fact that the U.S. leveraged all this incredible sort of basic science to develop all the technologies that won the war. <laughs> and then immediately recognized, and this is my interpretation, immediately recognized that the country had basically exhausted that pipeline of ideas and talent, in part because the scientific talent actually died in the war, but otherwise just they all got converted to applied technologists. And so there was this sense of, oh, wow, we really need to amp up our enterprise for training scientific researchers and for creating those ideas. And so what you have now is an enormously powerful machine for creating scientific talent and ideas in academia. And we're benefiting from it tremendously in terms of all those ideas are basically the bedrock for technology innovation that's driving the economy and social good, et cetera. So I think that's, I think that's very good. I think for those who get worried, I think one of the concerns is you now have a tension within academia between a core mission to educate and a core incentive around getting funding for research and publishing papers and doing research. And those don't have to be at odds, but practically sometimes they can be. So that would probably be the biggest thing I would point to. What else is wrong? <laughs> 
I don't love the what else is wrong framing. For me, the framing when I look at the research ecosystem is you have certain outcomes that you want. Simply put, right? U.S. government spends money on scientific research. And the goal is to get some outcomes. And generally, the outcomes span between what's the social return on investment for the taxpayer, right? They span the gamut from it's a valuable exercise for society. What differentiates us as humans is we go and explore the universe and we try and understand things. There's the outcome, which is let's just have a better understanding of the world. And then there's the outcome of we can use that better understanding of the world to create new technologies, systems, industries that can make us better from a health standpoint, an economic development standpoint, et cetera. And in theory, those things are not at odds, right? That should be a win-win. When you get both of those together. In practice, the way you structure and organize research and how you spend those dollars and what are the metrics for success and the incentives generally drive to certain outcomes on that spectrum of what folks would call fundamental versus applied. So for me, I, I don't see it as a question of, of what's wrong or broken in academic research. I think the fundamental question is when you look at how academic research has been structured and is practiced, what do we want to get out of that practice? What are we getting out of that practice? And and to what ends and what outcomes? Sure. So Alon, one thing I want to get out of my tax dollars spent towards academic research is stuff like the mRNA vaccine, which currently coursing through my veins, mm-hmm. which almost didn't happen. So what about this system made uh, the researchers who ended up giving humanity this breakthrough have such a difficult time pursuing their work in the academic courses on Norum? I think one of the challenges that exists within academic research and that I think right now a lot of folks are trying to think about, not just right now, I think it's been an ongoing question, which is academic research environments are incredible environments to train and inspire talent and to do the exploration research scientifically, drive new novel ideas, make new discoveries. And academia today is actually quite connected to industry. But when you look at sort of the core incentives of, a, of an academic researcher, generally the question of what should I do when I wake up today, they generally bias towards let me go discover new knowledge, think about how it might be applied, but not really go too far down that rabbit hole. And instead, make sure that I'm sharing responsibly the new discoveries and knowledge so that others out there can pick it up and run with it and apply it. And so if you look at, you know, so in general, I think academic research is really set up well for that. And where we sometimes have gaps and bottlenecks is the question of who's going to do the really hard work involved in figuring out how those early scientific discoveries actually translate into something valuable or implementable or viable in a field deployment or in a commercial space. And so if you think about mRNA and and COVID vaccine as a case study, I think there's one read on it, which is to say, wait a second, the system totally did its job. We had funded, thankfully, an enormous amount of fundamental research and somewhat applied research within academia to develop the bedrock of ideas to establish that such a thing as an mRNA-based vaccine could exist. And I think the the sort of pure economist might argue, yeah, and that was fine. And those ideas were out there in the ethos. And the reason there wasn't actually a practical vaccine is because we didn't need it yet. So there's one lens, which is COVID-19 hit and, <laughs> and the system did its work, which was all of a sudden there was an incentive and a motivation for 
those ideas to turn into something practical and, and we got it done. There's another frame that I think about, which is, wait a second, we had invested a lot in the fundamental research around those sorts of vaccines as a concept. The smartest folks in the fields of epidemiology and generally thinking about existential threats knew like at some point there was going to be a massive pandemic that was going to wreak enormous havoc on society. And so the question became what prevented us from actually positioning towards the practical implementation of those vaccines before the pandemic hit. And there you start getting into, frankly, role of government and there's a market failure here. Who's going to pay to develop a vaccine when there's not really a pandemic that needs the solution. And yet I think COVID-19 exposed the idea that when it comes to applied research, when it comes to developing a practical implementation of one of those scientific ideas, there are cases where we probably, we meaning sort of taxpayers, government, we probably should be investing in getting things closer to deployment because it's important to society and the private sector is not going to do it. And the question I think right now is, what are the right vehicles? Where do we fund that kind of research? That's a question I think about a lot. Interestingly, when you look at the early solutions to the vaccine, you've got case studies in Moderna and BioNTech, where both are essentially examples of researchers who lived within academia all of a sudden said, wow, I really want to focus on the applied aspects of this, sort of felt like misfits within the academic kind of culture and incentive structure. And lucky for us as a society, decided, you know what, I'm just like, I'm going to go do something that most of my friends and relatives probably think is totally nuts, which is I'm going to leave the safety of academia and I'm going to go try and start a company, but it's not really a company yet because there's not really a product yet. And basically, I'm going, to, I'm going to create a little shop that does applied research. And thankfully, those brave folks were doing that applied research for a number of years. And it's one of the reasons we were positioned to have the rapid solutions to COVID-19 that we did. No, that was wonderful. So we talked a little bit about startups and kind of how the the VC model requires like a thousand X payoff, which a lot of these applied research companies aren't necessarily set up to do, you know, the Modernas of the world being an exception. What what else does the current kind of VC ecosystem not quite fill in the gaps of this question? The The bigger question in my mind is, what is the optimal institution to do real applied translational research? And the way to think about this is, okay, again, you want an output. So the question is, how have you designed the system to hopefully get you that output? And you can look at a couple things. You can look at the people, you can look at the environment, you can look at the incentives, and then you can look at sort of the constraints. So when we think about applied and translational research, like one of the things that I find really fascinating is when you look historically at the research enterprise. For most of the 20th century, at least the first half, the best scientific research in the world, fundamental scientific research, happened within corporations. Yeah, this is the mantra people yeah. come back around Bell Labs as the great industrial research lab. But what's interesting was if you wanted to go to the best place in the world to do just basic fundamental scientific research, you went to a company. And so pretty interesting. Now you have a place that actually organizationally has the core underlying incentive to create products that live in society. And within that, you've got a team of researchers doing fundamental research. So you had a really natural kind of handholding and coupling 
between sort of the science and the application. And the enterprise has evolved pretty significantly where we now have the introduction of this enormous kind of more academic research enterprise and the incentives that that sit there. So, so let's okay. stay here on that. So, you know, Google three days ago just released its like cool TV, which kind of makes it look like you're talking mm. to someone in three dimensions. This is cool. This is not inventing the transistor. What is missing with today's corporate R&D that the kind of like Bell Labs and Fairchild semiconductors of the world were able to bring. Let's not be dismissive on how hard software research can be, right? That can be really hard research. And actually in the software world, we still have environments where a corporation can be doing a lot of really cutting edge fundamental research. And those are the Googles of the world. So that's great. When you think about sort of Bardeen, Bradan, Shockley developing the early transistor at Bell Labs, what was interesting there was a place like Bell Labs or IBM Research or DuPont, there was a much bigger basis of fundamental research outside of data, right? In the physical, natural, biological sciences. And to a large extent, that doesn't exist anymore today. The kind of academic work that I really appreciate on this comes from Shisha Rora and Sharon Bellinson at Duke, where they've started to track the idea that for a number of reasons that have to do with their own incentives, major corporations today are focused more on the near term, how do I get something enhanced or implemented into the market in terms of their internal development work and technology work. And instead, when it comes to thinking about how are we going to harvest the fruit coming out of fundamental research, because this enormous academic research universe exists, there's a question of why would we do that ourselves internally and compete with that? Let's just watch it and try and partner or cherry pick. And Back to your question about startups, the interesting thing is it's pretty hard for a big corporation focused on products to just reach its hand into a university and grab a technology because the ideas in the university don't look like products yet. And so I think startups have emerged as like this enormously powerful shuttle between those two worlds, at least in theory. And if you think about where are there environments where you have this natural coupling between the more scientific discovery-minded skill set and a real motivation and skill set around application, I believe that startups today are some of the most robust environments for that for a number of reasons. Number one, and I'm talking about science-based startups or spin-outs, those sorts of startups, but number one, when you go to incentives in the environment, like a startup is created from scratch to be a custom-built vehicle to translate research into a product. Right. So you don't have to worry about distractions, incentives. In a big company, you have to worry about what quarterly earnings. Was there a management change? Are they trying to serve a business unit head that's just here right now trying to do something? In academia, you worry about, are they really thinking about the application or are they trying to get their next nature paper? And should they be spending as much time in conferences or that sort of thing? In a startup, it's like the entire organism was built to do this function create something valuable out of research. So that's number yeah. one. Number two, because it's custom built, all of a sudden you're custom building it with the DNA that you need from a talent standpoint. So the researchers that are academic, entrepreneurs that might span the two, and then eventually you're bringing in more product manufacturing or people. So you're getting the right people in the mix. And so one, I think of the really interesting questions is if you believe the startup can be a really valuable vehicle for translation of research, what are the constraints? If you believe the sort of incentives are right, the environment right, what are the constraints? 
And I think there are two. One is we don't fund startups as research institutions, right? So the only way a startup can do research is if it has funding to do it. And we've always looked at startups as this is something that the private sector does. And the only way you get a really serious science-based startup effort is if you have someone willing to invest enough money to fund that effort. And that's generally venture capitalists. But venture capitalists have a very strong and narrow filter in terms of what's worth investing in, which generally relates to where are their high margins, where are the market's kind of going into a hype cycle right now, where can I get big payoffs in a reasonable period of time. So you can get science-based startups that are doing research in those directions, but that doesn't necessarily overlap well with what are the big applied research and technology objectives that we want to solve for society or for the taxpayer. So that's a really interesting, I think, space and opportunity to, to dive into. Alon, what, what are national labs, FFRDCs, and what are they supposed to be doing? Yeah, FFRDC, for those, the acronym Federally Funded Research and Development uh, corporation, maybe. But essentially, these are government labs, right? Both government operated and there are a number that are contracted operated. And if you look historically, a lot of these were essentially set up to house nuclear scientists, both when we needed them because we were building bombs and then in the Cold War where we needed to retain them because we might need to build bombs or continue to build bombs. And then interestingly, toward the end of the Cold War, there became a question of what are we doing with this incredible scientific talent? And there are some that have remained focused on, I wouldn't say bombs, national security, NNSA, nuclear work. And then there are many that have moved to become essentially multipurpose labs. The tough part about these government labs and FFRDCs is they're all really different. So they continue to have really unique strengths in some cases, but different and different strengths. And so it's really hard to just cohesively say, here's the role that the national labs play. Although there are a few themes. First, let me give you a couple examples just on some of those different strengths. The organization I run, Activate, is focused on sort of translational research. We do that in partnership with a number of world-class research institutions. A couple of those are national labs. So I'll give you an example. MIT Lincoln Lab is a... FFRDC that MIT manages for the Department of Defense. And Lincoln Lab exists as one of the really few true applied research labs in the country. And what I mean by true applied research is they can do very speculative work there. But when you look at the incentives of Lincoln Lab, they actually have government customers and they are building applied systems for those customers and their success and failure and are they doing good at their job has to do with did they deliver an applied system it's normally a first of its kind applied system but still and does it work right and wow what a mm-hmm. really powerful strength there of having that cross cut between cutting edge sort of science and research and something that's ending up in application for the dod but really i think a special environment If you look at another lab we work with, Lawrence Berkeley Lab, that's one of these labs that has moved towards more of a multi-purpose laboratory where they have a very strong strength in fundamental research. And the question becomes, well, okay, but why is that different than this big academic research enterprise you talked about? And so there are some really unique aspects. One is unlike academic research where you have one professor that sticks around and then a bunch of students that are constantly churning through. Really great environment for generating lots of novel ideas in a 
national lab like LBL, you have far more sort of staff scientists who may be around longer and you still can connect through those students. So there's a longer time horizon in terms of where some of those researchers have their knowledge. So that's the talent piece. A big one is what I jokingly would call the toys, meaning uh, a national lab like LBL, because of the direct funding from the government, has some very big projects with very big equipment. They've got a synchrotron advanced life source and they are able to then organize multidisciplinary research around those big capabilities. And the incentives are slightly different than universities as well. And so for certain projects, if you look around the national labs for certain, there are like, there are just these really unique attributes that sing. And the problem obviously becomes that there can be a lot of inefficiency in the system as a whole, especially if you treat all these national labs and the programs within them the same from a funder perspective, because policymakers don't really necessarily understand the differing strengths and the constraints of these labs. So they haven't quite figured out how to remove the constraints and leverage those strengths. Well, they also understand which ones are in their states. And those are the ones that they're going to care about more than others. Even if, as you pointed out, you know, some of these places are now in locations which aren't necessarily the most exciting places for, you know, the best scientists to live, which I thought was a little wrinkle. Elon, Endless Frontier proposed a $100 billion a new tech directorate living within the National Science Foundation, which was presumably supposed to do a lot of this applied and translational research. We're recording this on May 20th. That budget has now shrunk to, I think, $3 billion over five years, as well as spreading a lot of that sort of largesse out and around to the Department of Energy, to NSF proper, and to these national labs. I'm curious, Alon, like, where, what is the right way to think about where marginal taxpayer money should be going? And is it a sort of like absolute question or is it more about the way this money is spent if you're looking to try to unlock, you know, the next mRNA vaccine? Big question. Look, the, what I would say is given the strength that the U.S. has in scientific research and given the incredibly vibrant research enterprise that we have, I think a lot of folks would agree that there's more value that we can get out of the, the research enterprise. And I think we'd all agree that the, the discoveries that are happening scientifically can be the basis of enormous value. And there's just a shared idea of, okay, like how do we capture that value? Whether you come at it from a social good perspective or a competitive perspective, like that's the goal. What I would say is when the government says, okay, let's go spend a lot more, it's going to add to getting more value out. I think what we're all interested in seeing is like, where are the nonlinear opportunities? Where is the chance that that marginal dollar doesn't just get you a marginal percent basis point relative to the spending, but unlocks something really big and different? So what happens if the government decides to give money? They're going to give money to an agency within the government. It might be the National Science Foundation. It might be the Department of Energy. Those are funding agencies, right? So them getting the money and what happens with that money depends entirely on what are they going to fund with that money. And so that's where I think the, I think the really vibrant yeah. conversations that are having right now within both those agencies and some folks within the legislature is let's think about those outcomes that we want to see. And let's think about the people and the environment and the incentives and the, and the, and the constraints of the institutions that we have. And let's go find those bottlenecks and use this money 
to open those floodgates where we can. So, you know, my personal take on this, as I was expounding on before, is I think there is an enormous opportunity for the U.S. at the intersection of science and entrepreneurship with the idea that startups, pre-commercial startups, when they're still in the research phase, are like these very powerful, robust sort of custom-built vehicles and shuttles to move research ideas forward. I'd love to imagine that with that money, whether it's it's going to be connected in some ways to the incredible pieces of the research infrastructure we have, academia and otherwise, but I'd like to imagine that some of that money ends up in unlocking that as both a really powerful impact vehicle and a competitive strength. So you can think about that as one, but you can also think about things like workforce development. Oh, we know there's a bottleneck there, not just in how we're training folks for non-academic career paths, but also like we got a very narrow and elite sort of pipeline of talent when you look geographically, racially, gender-wise across the country afforded the opportunity to get into science and technology and certainly to get into applied research and scientific technology at the highest levels. So that's a bottleneck. Let's figure out how to open those floodgates. I don't know if I'm answering your question here. I'm, I'm now just getting into what I hope, the way I hope people think about this, which is great. Like every new dollar we spend should be addressing a bottleneck, opening a floodgate that otherwise might not be happening as well as it could be and should give us some nonlinear impact relative to how all the fundamental research that we've been investing in actually impacts, in this case, your average American, right? And that might be, oh, we haven't done as good of a job translating yeah. things like vaccines for pandemics that don't exist yet because, and if we're more prepared, like the average American's gonna benefit or look at infrastructure, right? Like we know that the really strong innovation mechanisms we have today, like venture capital, do a really poor job of driving infrastructure innovation because there's a regulatory component, because there's a much higher risk factor and timeline associated and resources needed to prove out a technology because market adoption is so much slower. But we also know like, shit, like we need more better infrastructure in this country to be resilient to things like climate change, but also to just deliver the best possible version of how we serve societal needs here. So how is this money going to unlock that? And how's it going to unlock yeah. that in an equitable distributed way around the country? There's a lot of cynicism, I think, right now around this whole sort of set of conversations and endless frontier and otherwise. And uh, call me an optimist, but what I'm seeing in a way that I just haven't ever seen in my career living as a misfit, I've been an applied research scientist at heart feeling, ah, there's just not enough people talking about the gaps here. Like, I'm just seeing... So many orders of magnitude do more conversations about these topics than I have ever seen. So I don't know what's going to happen with the funding in Endless Frontier, but those conversations are going to have an impact. And hopefully the funding ends up being deployed in a way that I'm talking about, or at least most of it. And, and we're going to see so many cool experiments in such a just different, vibrant phase of scientific innovation, I think, in this country than we've ever seen. I'm just going to call it. I think that's it. So if you're not in the space yet, get in the space. And if you're in the space, buckle your seatbelt, right? I really hope you're right. I was kind of actually really bummed out over the past few weeks of watching this energy seem to be dissipating and all these like former NSF presidents writing letters saying, oh, we don't really want to think about changing things. But hopefully there's a new generation waiting in the wings that's that's more excited to experiment. The 
Office of Integrative Activities, uh, this is kind of a random question, but I just stumbled on them. Like, are they doing this in the National Science Foundation or is this is this just like a weird website? <laughs> the, the National Science Foundation is a bigger organization. They, they do a lot of things. I think what I would say, and this goes to your bigger point, and I, I understand the sort of depression and cynicism <laughs> when people are saying like, oh, we're thinking about something that's $100 billion, like such game changing, so anomalous, shoot for the moon. And now we're like, does it really matter? Uh, what I'll say is, whether it's the National Science Foundation or the Department of Energy, I think both are are incorporated in different ways into into the act. But let's not let past performance be an indicator of future success. We're talking about government here a lot. I mean, <laughs> not everyone will agree with, but that I would argue NSF SBIR, so are the Small Business and Innovation Research Program. Okay, let me just frame this for you. I just mentioned, I think. Yeah. Startups are a super underappreciated sure. vehicle for research, right? So one question is, who funds research within startups other than venture capitalists? And, and what does the government do there? So if you just do the pie chart of where does the government put research funding, you'll find that 90%, I'm not talking about development funding, which really is about building systems, and it does go to a lot of companies, although far fewer than it did long ago. But 90% of the research funding that U.S. government puts out goes to universities, national labs, and nonprofit research labs. And I think most people would argue that's appropriate. Like the government shouldn't be funding industry because that's industry's job. And yet there are a lot of areas where industry is not doing the job. If you look at the other 10%, I think about seven or so percent of it goes to big companies. And then you've got two to 3% of all federal research funding that goes into small businesses and startups. If you look at it, Actually, there are only a few sources in the government for which you're even eligible to apply to be funded for research from the government as a small business or a startup. The ARPA agencies, DARPA and RPE and IARPA yep. actually fund small businesses and startups reasonably as part of their portfolio. To some extent, some other parts of the DOE applied offices do so. I don't think any of that's as much as it might be right-sized. And then you have this thing called the SBIR program where every agency is forced to commit a small percentage of their funding. And that's most of the money that goes from the government into funding research within startups. So I don't know, you might edit that whole source like tutorial out. But if you look at SBIR, this is back to past performance, not necessarily being an indicator of future success. NSF, and I don't know when this started, sometime in the last decade, basically completely transformed their SBIR program into one that now funds the most of all the SBIR programs in the government has the strongest focus on what I would call zero to one impact, meaning Rather than small, fund a small business that's just been doing a number of research grants, I won't say just, and there's good things that come out of those, but let's find opportunities to take researchers who just don't have any funding and get their first funding in. So really startup mode. And they've also done so with some of the probably five times better diversity representation in terms of at least gender, I'm not sure about race, than any other agency in the government. And if you talk to entrepreneurs, science entrepreneurs out there, they will tell you, oh, NSF SBIR is like one of the only SBIR agents, one of the only agencies that like seems to understand the experience I'm having and what I'm going through. Like it's a really amazing program. There are ways that SBIR in general yeah. could be improved, trust me, enormous ways. But NSF went from like zero and then all of a sudden, somehow like the the best version of SBIR across all government and a brand new way to think about that just emerged. 
So w- when I think about what could happen next year, I look at those examples and I say, okay, that stuff was happening before anyone cared about this or was paying attention. Now it seems like there's an opportunity both to create more of those sort of, oh, let's come out of nowhere and do something new and different, but also let's figure out the things that are working and expand them. I committed when we walked into this conversation to be like entirely optimistic. So if you want, we could do like a separate version where like I put on my cynical pessimistic hat and like cry and have a glass of whiskey. But like today I'm all smiles with you. We'll, we'll, we'll come back in a month or two and, and do that show, which I'm looking forward to. But I will say just doing so many shows with China specialists who just like have to think about authoritarianism and war all day. Uh, I got to do more science ones because this is just such a breath of fresh air. You even got me sold a lot. So what do you think about government taking stakes? This is something that a lot of other countries are, have a lot more comfort uh, in doing than the U.S. I'm curious if your sense of like having, you know, more direct investment on the U.S. government side is something that's useful or kind of beside the point. I, I can see a number of the different kind of angles and views on this. Uh, I will say it can get really messy to mix. This is one of the problems. This is why sort of the institutional side of applied research really applied. How do you go and transition from something that's oriented towards social good to something that's commercial? As soon as you get to that interface, things get tricky because the cultures are different, the incentives are different. And so even if it makes sense theoretically, I I tend to find that practically there's a bunch of mess that comes at too much entanglement between those two. So the question becomes, how how do you design these systems to, to be really thoughtful about how you approach that interface? For me personally, I don't like the idea of the government taking equity uh, or otherwise in the research. Because if there's anything I've learned is that when it comes to market and pure economics, the government tends to be a non-rational actor and they should be a non-rational actor relative to the markets. And so all of a sudden you can get all these weird perversions of what would naturally happen in, in the marketplace when you have a government as a stakeholder in those market conversations. And this comes up in a number of different ways. So I am a much bigger fan of figuring out appropriately how the government can unlock the impact that it wants to see. And I think about it from two dimensions. One that we talked about, which is how do you do the bottoms up? How do you support the talent, the infrastructure to do research that's commercially motivated maybe and applied motivated, but where it's clear that it's not a product or a business yet. So you're pretty far away from that line. I think the other thing, and this is something I hope we start seeing. So let's go back to Bell Labs, a fundamental research organization, the quality and size of Caltech sitting within a company. And people say, oh, those were the great corporate industrial research labs. Yeah, they were industrial research labs. But how could Bell Labs afford to have that Caltech sitting within its company? It's because it was essentially a utility monopoly that the government allowed to have all this funding. So- Interestingly, the question becomes, how can we do a better job of incentivizing the corporate world and the private sector to be more risk-taking and speculative and ambitious when it comes to science innovation in a way that doesn't, you know, where the government's not messing with the markets? When I think about this, one of the things I would love to see is especially in the US, we're trying to think about how we drive US manufacturing and domestic employment. I would love to see a program where somehow, whether through taxes or even directly, but directly is harder, the government incentivizes US-based companies, corporates, and motivates and incentivizes them 
to acquire and integrate technology from U.S. startups. So how do you get the government to basically say, we know we want these things to stay in the U.S. and we know we want it to benefit us and our economy rather than get our hands into it. Let's take the organizations that can go deploy the technology at scale through the corporations. They already are looking to engage with startups. The problem is they normally can't be as risk-taking or speculative as they might want to be. And let's give them a reason to put more money into integrating these new ideas in. So that's an example of, I think, something that would be really cool there. Elon, is there anything that should be subtracted from the current ecosystem? I love that question. I don't know. Like the thing that came to mind with my optimism hat is it's like the constraints, right? Like let's subtract the bottlenecks of the constraints. Uh, look, you can argue, and I have argued in the past, that there are aspects yeah. of our research system right now that are over capacity in a glut, that sort of thing. Perfect example, right? Like, are there too many PhDs? So we graduate roughly 40,000 science and engineering PhDs in the US every year, up from, if you look at 1950, I think it was like 8,000, right? Back to that idea that we've created this big enterprise. So, and I've got a PhD, I'm not an academic, although I engage with them very heavily. I'm super appreciative of the fact that I had my PhD. I'm also pretty anomalous in the sense that I, got a PhD, left academia, and I'm still really heavily involved in research and translational research. So uh, if you look at PhDs, I don't necessarily think there should be less or fewer PhDs, but if we're gonna generate this many PhDs, let's actually be thoughtful about what is what are they gonna do for us and what are we gonna do for them? So we certainly have too many stranded PhDs, PhDs that are, that are now trained to develop really powerful mm scientific tools, technologies in very sort of niche areas. And the space I sit in is for those that actually want to pursue applied or translational research in a really intensive way. We don't have many pathways to support that really well. We run what we call an entrepreneurial research fellowship, which is specifically designed to create an environment where you can translate your research and be singularly focused on that. I'll tell you, that we've had folks we've supported as fellows that are probably one of three world experts in their area of science had decided that they wanted to go create a technology based on the academic research they did, looked around and basically said, oh, I could stay a professor, but I'm not going to go build prototypes as a professor. My idea is way too crazy for venture capitalists, at least right now. And I can't think of any big corporation that's going to empower me to run a research program in this area. So I guess I'll go be a management consultant. And... Well, the idea that PhDs go become management consultants, yeah. that's fine. But what do we lose when a masterclass person is just doing that because they don't see any other alternative? Um, and so I think the, the question of what we need less of in two months, it's, it's just all about how do you get all the pieces of the system to be right-sized and to click? And how do you get the pieces to work together? And, and last one, just to close Alon, because I feel like personally attacked by this one. Why are patents a bad proxy for innovation? And what other suggestions do you have uh, for economists trying to measure this sort of thing? In a startup, right? Like we wrote patents for business reasons, not technology reasons, right? The number of patents and the patents that we wrote in my startup, and this is, I think, true of just about any business, are completely dictated by the idea that to both prove and realize value in the marketplace, like those patents are useful. So... For me, the frustration is like patents are in no way a proxy for level or amount of innovation. 
patents are a really good proxy for how much funding something has gotten that might be based in innovation. They're also a good proxy for gamesmanship. And they're easy to measure when you say, okay, how, mu how productive was some research grant that the government gave? The question is, well, how do I look at that productivity? Let's look at how many patents. And as long as you're thinking about the idea that you, how much funding, follow-on funding did that attract from venture or otherwise, that's fine. But as soon as you start saying, this is actually a measure of how innovative or how good an idea was versus a different idea, total BS. There are, in rare cases, early research patents, and there are certainly fields where this is true and commonplace, like pharma. But in other fields, in the majority of fields, it's really rare cases where an early patent in itself represents the innovation and it represents all of the value and societal benefit that might come from it. But the signal to noise on that is horrible because those are surrounded by thousands of times more patents that were just written for business defensive fluff reasons. And so for me, what I worry about as a non-economist looking at this is like, how do you separate the signal from the noise? That's my little uh, rant. Oh, so I run a nonprofit organization called Activate. Our mission is to empower scientists and engineers to improve the world by translating their research to market. And we do that primarily through sort of a flagship mechanism, a support structure for scientific talent that we call an entrepreneurial fellowship. And what that means is we run a competition once a year. We find the best scientists and engineers who their motivations are too applied for the academic world. They have an idea, but they're not yet a product or a business that the private sector can run with. And we've built this program to be the perfect environment to support that talent in making that transition, in taking something that came out of scientific discovery and bringing it to the doorstep of the market, to the doorstep of where a corporation, venture capitalists, can pick it up and run with it. And the impact in our minds is one, we think this can help improve the yield of new technologies that get created out of fundamental research that's happening in the country. But we also, and maybe even more so, see this as an opportunity to create a more important asset, which is scientists and engineers who have lived experience in actually navigating that transition and commercializing research so that they can continue to do that through the course of their careers and be mentors and role models and trainers and for more people doing that and hopefully be managing programs and systems that do that for the country in the future. Well, you know, Ben Horowitz and uh, Mark Andreessen really doesn't have shit on you guys. Um, applied research folks are the real MVPs. Best of luck and thank you so much for being a part of China Talk A Lot. Glad I could inject some optimism for you.
ממש כמו בפסה פסה עם פרח בגינה שיעיף לך את הקלבסה תזמיני חברות אבל אל תקראי לדינה למה 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 דינה? כי אלבילה היא אלשינה נגעת בשמיים כמו הזאתי של משינה אם היא תבוא לשייט אני משאיר את הבמרינה יש לי את הכיוון אני הרב חובל הדילר שלי מזמן קיבל פרסטו בן איזה מין גנן דגן בגן גידל עושה אותו שמח שהפרח שלו נובל לנסות לשמוח במה שיש. מה רציתם? יאו. מה רציתם? מה רצית? סטייל של כוכב הבאתי נעל של אדידס. טיפה ישנה עם קצת אבק זה השיט. לא מוכר את מה שאין לי, אין לי כוח להסביר. אין לי פאקינג כוח להמשיך. מה רצית? וכסף זוג חדש על עקבים, רק אותך איתי אם אין אותך חזן אותי, רק שישאלו אם זה חזה מלאכותי, אנשים זה ככה כן הם תמיד מדברים, אבל לי זה לא מזיז אם זה לא מלווה בביט, אז מה בסך הכל רציתי? מי זה מעניין? לא נראה לי רלוונטי, לא שרשראות ולא בוגטי, עד הטלוויזיה ישירות מהספארי, ובשביל המקום שבו גדלתי, ל"ו עבדל את זה בטעם שלי. זה בטעם, זה בטעם, זה בטעם שלי, זה בטעם, 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 זה